Well, tonight is a very exciting night, specifically for Pastor Justin and I as well, but hopefully for you guys. Um, we actually wrote this material um, back in like 2019 yeah. um, because the Lord laid it on our heart again. If, if, as we've seen, if we want to make this a grow service, which we do, um, we know Sunday morning is primarily worship. We know that we exist for what? What do we exist to do? To worship. Grow, serve. Please, please, Lord, get that down. Um, so uh, we, we do. We exist to worship, grow, serve, and, and particularly knowing that we worship corporately together on Sunday mornings. Even now we are worshiping, and yet uh, God has called us to grow. And so we want to transition kind of towards more of taking some of the things that we've learned as pastors um, about uh, about theology, about the Bible, and then entrusting them to you with the purpose that you would take these things and teach them into your disciple-making context, whether that's your family. So whether that tonight you know that you've been charged with children who have not yet come to know Christ, and so you are taking these things and bringing it down to their level to express it to them and to teach them, which is your charge as parents, or whether or not you're even doing that with spouses or friends or neighbors, whoever it is that you share the gospel with, that you'll have material to bring in. Um, to uh, bring them to the fold, and not only bring them to the fold, but to grow them, which we know is part of the Great Commission. So again, this is Old Testament Survey 1. This is the course we're looking at uh, tonight. Uh, this course, uh, really kind of a, a launching pad from Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and we adapted it and added a whole bunch of things, but we want to make sure we're giving them credit for, for uh, doing a lot of the legwork and helping kind of form uh, where we're going, but this is a 10-week course, sort of. We'll see. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be 10 weeks, uh, and it's aimed at covering 10 books in the Old Testament. And so, obviously, we know we're not going to be able to cover everything in those 10 books in 10 weeks, but we provided a, a course outline that hopefully you've got um, in your notes this evening. We'll give you one of these each week. If you want these emailed to you or you miss a week and you want them, please let us know. Uh, but we're aiming to go through um, each one of those outlines each individual week. So uh, we may not even be able to cover all of that in the short time we have together. But our goal instead is really to give you all the necessary information uh, from select books to, again, allow you to become familiar with the basic teaching of the Bible. And then to go home and, and to read the book, read the Old Testament on your own with a little more guidance as to what to look for. Uh, and notice in the text. And so, um, as always, if you have questions, please ask them. I know we've got a lot of stuff to cover, but your questions are important. We need to make sure this is landing and you guys are understanding. So if you have questions, make sure you put a hand up and we'll uh, answer those for you. Mark Dever says this. Mark Dever said, the Bible is more purchased than read. You ever heard that before? Think about that statement. Many Christians in places even like Korea and the United States, they have a Bible they just don't read it. However, the Lord Jesus Christ himself says that man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Matthew 4, 4. And the Bible in its entirety is, as we know from 2 Timothy 3, it's breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Therefore, we must learn to have a hunger for the Word of God. We need to read it daily. We need to seek it and seek to obey it constantly so that our lives are shaped and they are filled by the Word of God. 
Uh, it's, what, it's what's called a biblical worldview, that we see things happen in the world through the lens of the Scripture. And so let's go ahead and just break this down a little bit and see what this means. What is the Old Testament? Well, um, if you don't know, the Old Testament is the first of the two major sections of the Bible. It's composed of 39 books written over the course of 400 years or so. And as part of the Bible, there are some important things for us to understand about the Old Testament. Uh, number one is, as part of the Bible, the Old Testament has authority. Old Testament has authority, meaning that all the words in the Old Testament are God's words. Uh, in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to therefore disbelieve and disobey the author, God, right? So the Old Testament has authority. Second, the Old Testament also has inerrancy. Inerrancy. I-N-E-R-R-A-N-C-Y. We're going to go kind of quick too, so if you need to take community notes, just uh, go ahead and do that and, and copy off one another need be. Uh, inerrancy means that the Old Testament in the original manuscripts uh, does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. And that might not seem very important in our, our kind of post-truth culture, but you and I know that it's absolutely crucial, right? And just to illustrate how crucial it is, let's consider the implications of denying just this one doctrine, right? Let's just say we wrestle with inerrancy and we don't not sure the Bible is uh, fully factual and, 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 and doesn't, it does affirm things that are contrary to fact. Well, one, if we deny inerrancy, then we're essentially making our own human minds a higher standard than the truth of God's Word itself, aren't we? What was our memory verse this month? People are doing what is right in own eyes, right? Not only that, but if we deny inerrancy, we have to concede that the Bible could be wrong. Not only in a minor Old Testament detail, for example, but and major New Testament doctrines as well. And eventually, if we deny inerrancy, we honestly have to wonder if we can trust God in anything He says. Now, the road is dangerous for those who deny the inerrancy of God's Word. Another thing we can know about the Old Testament is not only does it have authority, not only is it inerrant, but uh, we know about its clarity. This means... That the Bible, believe it or not, is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who, one, will read it, two, who are seeking God's help, and three, who are being willing to obey whatever He commands. That's important. Do you know that? It's important because we, we kind of tend to think that only those who, who are, have, have a certain level of degree or education really can understand God's Word, so we don't feel like reading it because we may not feel like we're smart enough or able to understand it, but the Bible is clear in and on its own. It doesn't mean that those aren't good resources and we don't, can't have help and that you shouldn't seek if you have questions, but it's important we understand that the Old Testament is clear. It has clarity to it. Next, let's talk about the Old Testament's necessity. Not only its clarity, its inerrancy, authority, but its necessity. I don't mean by this that God or His Word needs anything but that we need the Old Testament. We need it for rightly understanding the gospel. We need it for spiritual growth. We need it for spiritual maintenance. And we need it for spiritual multiplication, right? Discipleship, to proclaim it. And finally, lastly, and what is the Old Testament? Let's talk about the Old Testament's sufficiency. 
What do you think sufficiency means? Well, you got the outline there, don't you? This means that the Bible has and continues to contain all the words of God that He intended for His people to have at each stage of redemptive history. Any questions about that first section, what is the Old Testament? Okay. If you do, let me know. Uh, now we move on to why do we study the Old Testament? We see the, what, it, what it is. Let's start by asking a very simple question. Why should we study the Old Testament? I mean, after all, it's old, right? Why should we study the Old Testament? Well, uh, old is bad and new is good in our culture, right? Well, furthermore, we are Christians, Christians, right? We follow Jesus. And, and isn't the religion for the followers of Jesus really only laid out in the New Testament? I mean, the name Jesus doesn't even occur, not even once in the Old Testament. Isn't it irrelevant? Besides, then you got all those rules and lists and names. It's, it's just impossible to understand. Even at times, it's, it can be boring. Well, and so often, we hear the God of the Old Testament, not only um, is it old, but we hear that God is a God of wrath and a God of judgment. He's, he's mean. And I like the God of the New Testament a little bit better because He's one of love and compassion. So isn't the Old Testament kind of inconsistent with the New Testament? Why devote two entire classes toward it? Why should we study the Old Testament? Well, there are lots of reasons to study the Old Testament. Let's take a look, take a look at some. Uh, number one is uh, the Old Testament is the Word of God just as much as the New Testament. Amen. Just as much as the New Testament. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, we know much about God, man. We know about His plans, God's plans to redeem His people for Himself. All of that is unfolded in the Old Testament. Second, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, they really don't make much sense without the teachings of the Old Testament. Uh, the events, the people, and the institutions of the Old Testament, they all took place under God's sovereign rule so that there would be a context into which Jesus would be born and His words and actions would make sense. And in the same way, we read of Jesus' words and actions and we can only fully understand them when we understand them against the backdrop of God's work in the world before Jesus came. In, in fact, let me give you an example. If somebody want to read that John 7 text for me, you can go ahead and slip a hand up if you're interested in that. John 7, 37-39. Go ahead, Warren. On the last day of the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him will receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, so how in the world can we take that text and really understand what he's saying here, unless first we understand what feast this is, what they're celebrating at it, what goes into such a celebration, and what does water of the Spirit have to do with any of that? How does John know that's what Jesus meant? Where in the Scriptures are we told of living water flowing from within, and what does that mean in those Scriptures? Well, all of those things are really answered to us in the Old Testament. Do you see how understanding the Old Testament will really open up the New Testament to us? 
Third, the third reason why studying the New Testament is because by conservative estimates, the New Testament makes 295 separate quotations of the Old Testament. And then on top of those, there are over 600 clear allusions to the Old Testament. So mathematically speaking, over 10% of the New Testament is either a direct Old Testament quote or allusion to it. And so, so it's clear that the New Testament authors premise their theology on the theology of the Old Testament. And they expected their readers to have a familiarity with it. So again, we're not going to understand the New Testament unless we understand first the Old Testament. Finally, more than just uh, an aid for knowing the New Testament better, Jesus himself says that the Old Testament teaches us about him. Again, you are familiar with this text, right? Luke 24, 25. You know what's happening in that text? What's happening? Jesus is where? Oh, come on. We love this text. The road to Emmaus. You know what happens on the road to Emmaus? The resurrected Jesus is meeting two disciples here. Okay, look. Let's just read it together. Uh, actually, we, let's let me tell you first, and then we'll we'll kind of read the, the text there. There are two disciples. They're walking down a road. They're discussing Jesus' death. Right? Jesus is gone. I can't believe he died. What in the world's happening? Our lives are over. And then suddenly they encounter the resurrected Christ, and he comes alongside them. But they don't recognize him whatsoever until. Jesus reveals himself as Christ to them. So they now see the resurrected Jesus. And then look at what this Christ says to them. What Jesus says to them in Luke 24, 25-27. He says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then it says, in beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So these people miss the promise of the resurrection, even in the Old Testament. They, they miss the suffering servant that was promised from the Old Testament. And Jesus tells them, did you not see this in the Old Testament? And then Jesus begins to expound a sermon to them from Genesis to Malachi, at least I like to believe, showing them all in the Old Testament that points to himself. You see something similar down in verse 44 when he's later speaking to his disciples in Luke 2444. Anybody want to read that for me? Go ahead, Bob. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. That's right. That pretty much covers the whole Old Testament, doesn't it? And just in case you were doubting whether or not that was true, he makes it pretty clear for us in John 5.39. He says, you search the Scriptures. What do you think he means by Scriptures there since that was written in the book of John? Yeah, was Matthew, Mark, and Luke written at that point when Jesus was here? No, not yet. No, he says, you search the Scriptures, meaning the Old Testament Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And he says, and these are they which testify about me. What Scriptures, again, is he talking about? The Old Testament, of course. So apparently, Jesus believed that he is indeed in the Old Testament, even if his name, Jesus, isn't. And the rest of the New Testament authors agree as well. You see the list there, Acts 3, 1, 18. Uh, Peter says, But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. 
Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, For I deliver to you that of first of all of what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Again, Paul's writing about the Old Testament. The Scriptures there are the Old Testament. That he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.15 The Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. In all, we have a fuller, richer, and more robust understanding of who Jesus is and the Gospel if we know our Old Testament better. And guys, that's our goal, isn't it? To, To know Jesus more and to know the Lord Jesus Christ. At a a greater and greater level, well, the Old Testament can and does and will enrich our knowledge of and our relationship with Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Okay, this next section has got some visuals for you. And and really, I'm not going to spend too much time here. uh, But I want you, particularly this this first, uh, this one right here, this little picture, this little graph, I guess is what you call it. lost the word. Um, This right here is very, very important. This is the biblical timeline. The Bible is a book that is one big story. And it slowly unravels throughout human history. It begins with creation and it ends with God's people dwelling with Him forever and His enemies being punished in hell forever. And in between, there's a lot of stuff that happens. Um, With the four central events being this. The fall of man... The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, right? Without the fall of man, we have an incomplete story. Uh, And then, or creation starting, and then Christ returning to judge in heaven and hell. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you, if you can, even just to keep that picture on your phone. Because every sermon you hear, you need to do this. There are three questions we need to be asking ourselves when we're either reading a text or hearing a text preached. To see if it's being preached Correctly. The first is, where is this passage or this book on this Bible timeline? Right? So, for instance, uh, where is uh, 2 Samuel on this Bible timeline? Well, we would say uh, probably right here somewhere, somewhere at this point, right? Not quite yet to the death and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. In fact, we're pretty far away, but we know it's after the fall. Where am I on the Bible timeline? Well, I know that... Uh, Jesus has died and He's been risen again from the grave. I know that Christ has yet to return to judge heaven and hell, so I know I'm somewhere on, on this side, to the right. Okay. And the third is, how do I read this in the light of the things that have happened in between? It's very important. It's important for understanding what it meant to the original audience as they heard it, and it's important for understanding what it means for us as we read it in light of the events that have taken place. And so there you've got an Old Testament in a nutshell graph that's very helpful for you. You've got four events, creation, fall, flood, tower, four groups that you'll notice. The patriarchs, when we take talk about the patriarchs, what book are we going to see the patriarchs in? Anybody know? Genesis, Genesis right? Talk about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, patriarchs, judges, um, which we'll find primarily in the book of? You guys are with me tonight. All right. Knock that one out of the park. All right. Uh, We have kings, which there's even a book of kings. Then we have prophets. Uh, Two dates in particular you need to remember would be 722 B.C. and 586 B.C. 722 B.C. would be the Assyrian takeover over 
Israel and 586 BC would be the Babylonian takeover over Judah, right? Remember the kingdom split in the Old Testament? Israel's to the north, Judah's to the south, and they're taken over and put in exile. And then two seasons, a season of return and a season of silence that takes place after. In fact, uh, all of those four, first four events take place in the book of Genesis, patriarchs, and it just kind of throws out the theme right now. So, so even in 2 Samuel, right, where we're going on Sunday morning, where will we find ourselves? We would find ourselves right in between this group right here, wouldn't we? In fact, we'd be at the, at the very first part of Kings because we've seen that Samuel was the last judge, right? We saw that who was the first king in Israel? Saul, right? And now Saul has been dethroned and God has given him a king after his own heart. So we're in that group. Again, this is very important. Just get, use this as a resource anytime you're reading God's word or preparing to hear a sermon preach. You have key dates in the Old Testament. I'm kind of just going to let you look at that uh, and as well as an overview of the book of Genesis there um, which will be important but I think having it there and just getting a, getting a good look at it would be enough for today because I'd like to go ahead and start um, chapters 1 through 2 for us make sure we've got enough time to cover all this. Today we're only aiming to cover uh, Genesis 1 and 2. Okay? And obviously, Genesis is going to take a little bit longer to, to walk through than most because Genesis is foundational to understanding the rest of the Bible. Uh, we're going to start with a creation account in chapters 1 and 2. And in these chapters, we read of the created order. We read about how mankind was supposed to be before sin entered in and disturbed the perfect harmony of the universe and the perfect harmony in our relationships with God and with each other. And chapter 3... We read the first sin and all of uh, the, the declination of mankind from that moment, all the effects of sin that we live in now. And then the rest of the Bible then from that moment on is about God's plan to restore both us and the universe to that original pre-sin perfect state. So looking at the way the universe was before sin, right, we'll better understand what God is doing throughout the rest of the Bible because we'll see what it is that God is trying to reestablish. To put it another way, understanding God's design in the beginning is going to help us understand God's plan of redemption today and His goals for the future. Still, in other words, Genesis 1 and 2, they set the context for understanding the rest of the Bible. Maybe we should just leave it at that. What is the context? Well, this portion of the Bible was written by Moses. Moses is the proposed author here. Of course, he wasn't there to be an eyewitness of these events. No, he wasn't. Uh, rather, this was revealed to him at some time during his time as prophet to the nation of Israel. And just by way of a side note, uh, there's a lot of discussion, I don't know if you know this, about whether or not Moses really did write the first five books of the Bible. In fact, some even doubt that Moses ever even existed in the first place. That's a, that's a real thing. I know. Uh, well, we obviously take the position that Moses was a real person and that he did write these books. So I'm going to be operating from that position for the rest of this course. However, I, I do want to say it's very important we understand in an Old Testament survey class, it, it's not uh, the aim of a survey class to give what we call um, uh, an apologetic defense, right? Uh, to, to defend our arguments for that particular position. Uh, but there are a couple books you can read if you're interested in that debate. And you, uh, if, you, if you're interested, let me know and I'll give them to you. Uh, what's the theme of the book of Genesis? See the context written by Moses. 
probably sometime or he's on Mount Sinai, I'd imagine. What's the theme? Well, the theme of the first two chapters of Genesis would be this, as follows. God is an eternal and self-sufficient God who by sheer verbal fiat has sovereignly created the universe. That's feet, right? Fiat. Is it fiat? Anyway. Uh, created the universe and all that is in it. You wrote that part. Um, in order to display His glory. The crown of His created order is mankind, the only creature created in God's image. Human beings are created in order to specifically display God's glory as they obediently govern the earth while enjoying loving fellowship with God and each other. Can you repeat that back to me? Uh, you have it written down, so you can read it back to me. Um, but don't. You don't have to. Uh, so, uh, now I want to... And listen, this is kind of the, the way we'll be looking at each one of these books throughout the Old Testament surveys. We're going to start with context, look at the author. We're going to start with what's the major theme. How do I put Genesis 1 and 2 in something that might be a little bit more simpler and reproducible so that I can, again, share that with others? And then what are some of the pivotal texts in that? Now, obviously with Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, um, we're not... We, there's not a whole lot of text to deal with that'll be pivotal text, but then we get to try and cover a couple books at a time. We'll see some uh, larger text that'll be more pivotal. So let's go and see where these things are taught in the text. In fact, open your Bibles if you got them, and let's go ahead and read Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Anybody want to volunteer to do that for us? Go ahead, John. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Alright, thank you, brother. So the first thing we really notice here, who's the subject of the first sentence? First, first sentence, who's the subject in that sentence? God. God, absolutely, right? Because the creation account is primarily about, you want to guess what that says? God, it is. Uh, yes, the time it took to create and, and what it was that God created, those things are all important, certainly. But we do not need to miss the main objective of the creation account by getting lost in the details. The creation account is about God. It tells us about who He is and His nature. It tells us about His characteristics. In fact, we should remember this, uh, this about the entire Bible. The entire Bible is about the Lord. The stories in the Bible are not just ends in themselves, nor are they intended to merely provide us with just some cool moral stories that we can live out. Rather, first and foremost, the stories in the Bible are means to tell us about God, who He is, what He's like, what He's doing. And then derivative from that, we understand who we are in light of who He is. We can only understand who we are in light of who God is. So in this class, and I recommend this practice for your own study, we will always ask this question. If you don't ask this question during your Bible reading, let me encourage you to ask it. What is this passage teach us about God? That simple question is something that's so important for you as you study the Scripture on your own. What does this passage teach us about God? In fact, when I'm writing sermons, that's it's right where we start. What does it teach us about God? 
Only then will we rightly understand what it tells us about ourselves as we consider who we are in reference to our Creator. So the first thing I want us to see about this particular passage, this theme text in Genesis chapter 1, is that God is eternal. Who made God? No one. (laughs) Come on, you've got to know the answer to that one, right? No one made God. Notice verse 1 does not begin with the explanation of where God came from. In fact, it doesn't even provide, again, an apologetical defense for the existence of God. Rather, the text simply assumes the existence of God. He simply is, He always has been, and He always will be. So oftentimes, folks, will ask the question, you'll hear it from your kids if you have small children, who made God? If God made everything here, then who made Him? The answer, again, shouldn't be staggering, but it is. No one. No one made God. When was God born? When did He start? Never. He never had a beginning. He is from everlasting. In fact, He created the concept of time. You recognize that, right? He's outside of time. He he even made time to be a thing. When He... Uh, We as human beings, we're bound by time, and we find this truth really hard to wrap our minds around, don't we? Because why? To us, everything has what? A beginning and an ending. Exactly. Everything does. Each day starts, and then the day ends. And so seasons start and end, unless you live in Florida, that's just summer all the time. Seasons of our lives start, and then seasons of our lives end. This course has started, and sorry, I know you're really broken up about this, but it will also end. Even our lives had a beginning, and morally speaking, we know they'll all have an end. So it's hard for us to envision an eternal anything, isn't it? But that is one thing that makes God, God. His eternality. No one and nothing else can claim that. It is one of the attributes of God that make Him completely distinct and completely unique from everyone and everything else. God is God, and there is none like Him. That's what we see in Psalm 90, verse 2. Someone want to read that for us? Good, Phil. Before the mountains were brought forth, forever you have formed the earth and the world, even from the everlasting to the everlasting world. You are God, right? So... From the first point of God's eternality, then, we can move on and say, because we know this about God, we see that not only is God eternal, but God is self-sufficient. He is self-sufficient. You'll notice in verse 1, He's completely alone in His work. He does not need anyone or anything's assistance. This creation is what we call ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. This creation is utterly different from any of the ancient pagan creation stories like the Babylonian Enuma Elish or the Greek poem on origins of Hesiod, Theogony. Both of these ancient cosmogonies, or cosmogon, I don't know what that word is. Cosmic. Cosmic being, that's a typo, my bad. Um, It's like, what does that say? Uh, Both of these ancient deities picture a god working on some sort of already existing primeval stuff. Okay? 
These are all variations of a relative creation and not an absolute creation. So therefore, in their religions, the natural universe had a place of preeminence, either for good or for evil, on a par, at least near, to their gods. That's not how we see it in Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament. Rather, in Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament, we see a God who is not on the same par with nature or accountable to nature or subservient to nature, but a God who is supreme and who is sovereign over nature. Therefore, the created universe is not what is worshipped. The Creator alone deserves worship, and created people and things do not. you got some scripture references there as well. How then did God create the universe if He had no physical matter to work with? Again, the answer is staggering. How did God create the universe? God created the universe by the power of His... Word, voice. That's all, that's acceptable. Look at verse 3 again. Profound words. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Then God said. God simply spoke and light was born. Verse 6 tells us something very similar. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. It's very true. He does the same thing in creating waters and sky. In verse 9, the land is created the same way. The list goes on and on. God's word is so powerful that even that which does not exist yet must obey it. Amen. Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I Please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. This brings us to the next point. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. What we mean by that is that God has complete control of His universe. There is not a molecule anywhere that can frustrate God or His purposes. What He has determined, what He wills, happens. Did you notice that in verse 3? When God said, let there be light, what happens? Moses is making a point with really curt wording. Command, immediate result. Command, immediate result. Notice that after each command in Genesis 1, the result is always, and it was so. You see that at the end of verses 7, 9, 11, 15, the list goes on. What God determines, speaks, and wills comes to pass. We've seen that on Sunday morning, right? His word is inexorable, unstoppable, inescapable. What God says comes to pass. Psalm 135, verses 5 and 6. You got that in your notes? Somebody read that for me, if you will. Go ahead, Bob. For I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deep places. Amen. So finally, before we move on to think about mankind, we also see in Genesis 1, not only is God sovereign, create things by the power of His Word, but God is good. That's pretty clear in this text, isn't it? Genesis 1, we know that from this text. Verses 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, 25, and 31. God looks on what He has made and He calls it 
The created universe is good. Now listen, it's not God, it's not to be worshipped, but it is good. Therefore, everything from our bodies to Alaskan wildlife reserves have dignity in and of themselves and are able to be respected and cared for as though they belong to a God who says they are good. The implication from it all is that God is a good God. He makes good things. He does good things. But we have no cruel dictator whose word is obeyed because he'll lash out in anger if it is not. We have a good God who does good things to and for His creation and His creatures. So there we see now the days of creation. We see a constant thread here, forming and filling, forming and filling. Day one, we have light. Day four, we're going to fill the light with sun, moons, and stars. Not Well, yeah, moons. Uh, day two, we're going to fill the world with sky and water. Or we're going to form the world with sky and water. And then day five, we're going to fill the the waters with birds and fish and skies. Not, not birds, I'm getting really smooth here. Dry, uh, day three, we're forming land. Day six, we're filling land with animals and man. So let's go ahead and read Genesis chapter 1. Somebody do that for me, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All right, so, yeah, it's 28, that's fine. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right. This is, this is important. Human beings are presented really as the crowning act or pinnacle of God's creative activity. When He was done creating everything else, His last act of creation, He made one creature that stood in special relationship to Him, unlike any other creature, and fulfilled a unique role in the created order that no other creature could fulfill. So let's look at that special relationship and role. Notice in verse 26, the human beings are said to be created in the likeness or image of God. With respect to plants and birds and beasts, we read that God made them after their kind. Human beings were not created after the pattern of some other creature, but of God Himself in His image and in His likeness. I have this conversation with my five-year-old all the time while her brother is stomping ants outside and she's crying at the death of those ants, right? Uh, we are created in the image of God. Those ants are not. God has reason, intelligence, memory, ethical norms, the capacity to love and have relationship with others, the ability to speak and communicate ideas and, and so forth. This is what it is meant when we are created in His image. So we have a distinct relationship with God, to know God, to love God, to interact with Him. And yet notice, humanity may be the pinnacle of creation, yet He is only the pinnacle of creation. He's not the pinnacle of all... <laughs> The human being remains a referential and derivative creature. Our being made in God's image stresses the radical nature of our dependence and subservience to God. He is creator, 
We are creatures. That's who we are. Secondly, being created in the image of God not only puts us in distinct relationship to God, but also carries with it a distinct role in the created order. To keep with the same language, we say that human beings are created to image God. We are to take these attributes of God, which He has instilled in us, and thereby shine His characteristics all over the earth. In doing so, we spread His glory throughout the world. Thirdly, we see that in this, we get into God's motive for creating. That's a question I'm always asked a lot, right? Is it true that God created the universe to display His glory, to display His excellencies, to that very created order and the angels looking on? Yes, it is. Revelation 4.11, right? You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And since mankind is the pinnacle of creation, God's uh, created in God's image, he can and is called to spread the glory of God in a very specific way that the rest of creation cannot. That means that those characteristics of reason, intelligence, ethics, loves, community, communication, and so forth, they are to be exercised wherever mankind goes. He thereby spreads the glory of God on whose image he is created. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5, 16, Let your light so shine before men. Why? That they might see your good works and glorify you. Is that it? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. More specifically though, mankind is spread, is to spread the glorious image of God throughout the created order by exercising one particular attribute of God that I have not mentioned yet. And that is God's lordship and care. His lordship and his care. Do you see in verses 26 and 28, man is called to have what we would say dominion over the various parts of creation. Now, this does not mean that mankind is here given a blank check to do whatever he so desires with the plants, animals, and natural resources of the earth as though the earth is now written over to him out of the hands of God to be his playground without any accountability whatsoever. Rather, man's exercise of dominion is to image forth the way God exercises dominion. God's exercise of dominion is an orderly, caring, nurturing way. We read about that in Genesis 1. Therefore, man's dominion is to be exercised in a way that brings the creation to be more easily inhabited by understanding it and using it all the while in a way that cares and protects the creation itself. In this way, man acts as king over and a priest for creation. King over and priest for creation. So uh, you'll notice in Genesis 2, it's, it's a similar story at a different perspective. Why, why is that there? Why is Genesis 2 from a different perspective from Genesis 1, even though it overlaps some of the content? Some of it's the same, some of it's not. Well, here's why. Genesis 1 is telling the historical account of creation. So thus Moses, and ultimately the Lord, wrote it in sequential order and used the Lord's name, Elohim, a name showing His power, greatness, and His trinity. In Genesis 2, on the other hand, it's telling us a biographical account. Not a historical account, but a biographical account of the creation of mankind and his relationship with his creator. So the author zooms in on a specific part of the previous historical account 
focusing on man. Notice also that the name of God used here is the Lord, or Yahweh, which is a much more intimate and close name. So a couple more. We're almost done. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2 now. Let's start at the beginning of chapter 2. We read of God resting from His work. It's because, as it says in verse 2, God was finished with all of His work, and therefore He enjoyed rest. And and He didn't rest because He was exhausted. I, I point this out because He also created man to rest. Now, while we certainly have work to do as mankind, subdue the earth and exercise dominion, over, as we just read, we work and keep the land, as it says in Genesis 2.15. Man nonetheless did so without toil, without pain, without sweat from the brow. Can you imagine working in Florida for all of our guys who work outside on a continual basis? The joy of not having a drop of sweat leave your body while you're working hard. This is how work was in the beginning. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18-25 through 25, then tells us the rest in peace existed on every level between God and man, between man and earth, and between man and woman. Time escapes us right now to, uh, right now to flesh out of, uh, to, I'm sorry, we, we have to think about all the implications of this first marriage in Genesis 2. But, but we don't have a lot of time to do that. So we, so we really can't. But I want you to think about this. Because there's a wealth of information here. So we'll suffice now to say that these two created human beings had perfect harmony of thought Emotion, love, communication, cooperation, understanding, trust, and peace. And so married couples, I'm not going to use the same illustration for work, but think about that. (laughs) Perfect communion with one another. It's what they had. And finally, verses 15 through 17. All of this sounds wonderful, doesn't it? So far? Just imagine. Lord God exercising complete sovereignty and caring for His pristine and peaceful creation as people live there in perfect fellowship with God and each other, exercising their stewardship of the earth as kings and priests, displaying God's glory. It's all so wonderful. Well, what happened? Why don't we experience such things today? I don't know about you, but I don't really see a pristine environment people living in love of God and each other. I see hurricanes. I see people hating God, hating each other, killing each other. What happened? Well, all that these chapters describe is a world, a very good world as it was before the entrance of sin into it. This is all before mankind's rebellion against this good and loving God. And we're going to read about that mutiny and high treason next week, but I mention it now simply to point out the obvious. This kingdom that we're reading about here needs to be restored. This kingdom needs to be restored. In fact, that's what the rest of the Bible is all about. It's the story of God's plan to restore this perfect paradise world. The themes we've talked about today, the sovereignty and lordship, the pristine earth as a place to have fellowship with God and others, kings and priests, the earth, rest and peace, glorifying God, they're going to be some of the threads that God uses to hold this entire story together. So, okay, this is probably the most important part we're going to talk about, and this is the part I really want you to invest in. I know it's a lot of information. I know that even in your discipleship-making area, you might not invest all that information in going over Genesis 1 and 2. I get that. But application is important. Before we conclude, just a brief word. We're going to do this at the end of every class. 
Because application should always be made when human beings come in contact with a speaking God. James 1.22 tells us to be doers of the Word, not only hearers. So we deceive ourselves if we're not doing what we hear. So what are some ramifications of Genesis 1 and 2 in our lives, individually and as a corporate church body? So, so that's what I want you to begin to ask. In fact, we're going to call it homework. I probably shouldn't call it homework. But I want you to do this, friends. This is the best way I can get you to take what you've heard. And listen, it doesn't have to be perfect. I'm not asking you to write a dissertation. I'm not writing, asking you to write a, a length of a packet here. But if there's a couple things in your own words that you could say, Genesis 1 and 2 teaches about God, man, what would it be? And what are the implications of you, your answers above in your daily life? What are some practical ways that you can weave these truths into your daily conversations? Oh, this is the part right here that we need. Remember we talked about last week being on mission together? This is the mission right here. You take this and you invest that into somebody else's life. Any questions, thoughts, concerns, insults? Again, I want you to think, guys, what is the avenue I have of discipleship? Because, again... I'm not the only one called here to make disciples. It's not just for your pastor. Now, I'm committed to making disciples. But that call is for every one of us. So if you've got children, it's very easy, right? Because you know you're called to make children your disciples. You invest this into them. But if, if not, then be thinking in your life, who can I pray about asking? Maybe somebody that's, that's a Sunday morning only or that, that you see in Sunday school or that, that's a new Christian. Oh yeah, definitely a propellant towards kids ministry. If you're here, how can I take this and invest this into the children of this church who are not saved yet? All of this is supposed to be reproducible. So be thinking, what is it that I can take from this and how can I reproduce it to somebody else? There's no thoughts. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what we see in the creation account and how it teaches us about you, who you are, your character. Lord, how powerful you are, your sufficiency, our dependability, our dependence upon you and your dependability. Father, help us as we go and think about the context and areas in this life we can reproduce this to someone else so we can begin to have even these difficult conversations and walk through biblical theology with somebody. We pray each and every one here would have that avenue and opportunity, Lord, that you would allow us to take part of the Great Commission because it is a great commission. We love you, Lord Jesus. Be with us as we go our separate ways. In your name we pray. Amen.